If this is uh, your first time in Amen, what a time to start as we, um, as we begin the Gospel of John, which for many of us is our favorite book of the Bible. If, you are, uh, if this is your first time, we highly encourage you to get involved in some of those small groups uh, that we have for Amen. It would be an excellent opportunity for you to meet older and younger men in the faith, walk through this book together. And of course, there's still time to invite friends and, um, and relatives, neighbors and coworkers. We would love to have them here as we study John. Go ahead and flip open to John chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first five verses today. The prologue um, is much longer than the first five verses. We'll be spending the next couple of weeks looking at it. But today we'll just touch the first uh, five verses. Now, anytime uh, anybody studies the Bible, uh, the first thing they must do, in fact, you know, there's plenty of things you can do to help you in your study. I recommend uh, the ESV Study Bible if you don't have it, or the Gospel Transformation Bible. We're looking at the Gospel Transformation Bible. I'll be reading from that this morning. I believe George is a contributor, our senior pastor is a contributor to some of the commentary in that Bible. Um, but get yourself a good commentary, too. We recommend um, the Bible Speaks today. I believe you got an email for that. Also, Don Carson's Pillar Commentary, or any good pastor uh, that believes God's word is true, that you trust, uh, excellent resources to listen to, you know, old sermon series. But anything that, uh, before you do anything, the first thing that you must do is figure out what the author's purpose of writing that book is. It's kind of like the rudder to a ship. It will guide you and direct you in your study. Now, John leaves no mystery for us. He tells us plainly what the purpose of his gospel is, and he lists it in John chapter 20, Verse 30, this is the purpose of the whole thing, and this is what he says. This is written, this gospel is written, these things I've written, are so that, purpose statement, you may, one, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing the result of that purpose statement, so that you might have life in his name. If you're wondering what the purpose of John is, what our overall purpose is of getting here at 6.30 in the morning to study the Gospel of John, is that. That we might believe. And brothers, if you already believe, that we would grow in our belief. That we would grow in our faith so that we might have life. And if you already have that life, that you would learn to live that life and enjoy that life in His name. That's the purpose of John. That's our overall purpose of this study. Now a couple of other things before we dive in. You'll know that and you may have heard this before, that all of the Gospels are a bit different. John is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. It doesn't make it better, it's just different. It's gloriously different. So for example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are what we call synoptic Gospels. That means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke look at Jesus in a similar way, present Jesus in a similar way, and they put together their Gospels in a similar way. Um, they generally start uh, near the beginning of Jesus' life. Mark starts a little bit later. Um, and they all focus primarily on Jesus' ministry in the north in and around the Sea of Galilee. That doesn't mean they don't have their own emphases. Mark, for example, he focuses on the kingship and kingdom of Jesus. He's writing primarily to Gentiles in Rome. Uh, Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish Christians, and what he's trying to do is to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. So if you remember our study in Matthew, there was a lot of Old Testament quotations and allusions in Matthew. Uh, Luke is a historian. He wants to locate Jesus in history. It's a wonderful apologetic of all of these dates and historical figures that say, hey, this, this isn't myth. This happened in real time. 
And he's also wanting to show Jesus as welcoming to the disenfranchised and to the stranger. John is a little bit different. First off, John writes much later, probably in and around 90 AD, or near the end of his life, the, the, the Apostle John. Um, he's focusing on Jesus' ministry in and around Jerusalem, around the, the, uh, the celebration feasts in the Jewish tradition. And he organizes his gospel differently. There's three major organizational uh, divisions in John's gospel. There's the prologue, and we'll be spending about three weeks in the prologue. It's some rich stuff. <laughs> the first five verses, if you've read it ahead, it's going to be a drop in the bucket today, boys. There's a lot of stuff in those first five verses. But after the prologue, there's the first major section, about halfway through chapter 1 through the end of chapter 12. That's the book of signs, sayings and miracles that Jesus does that point to who he is. Then the last eight chapters focus on the final week of Jesus' life. Eight chapters on that last week, and I can't wait till we get there. But John organizes his gospel differently from the other guys. He's also explicitly more theological, and we'll even see that today. And he includes sayings like the I am statements and includes stories like Nicodemus, Lazarus, the woman at the well. He includes stories and sayings that those other gospel writers do not include. Now, that does not mean that those gospel writers didn't know these sayings, didn't know these stories. Of course they did. John himself says in this gospel that Jesus said so many amazing things and did so many amazing things they couldn't possibly be contained in just one book or any of the books in all of the world. So each of them were writing selectively. John, the beloved disciple, Jesus' best friend, is writing selectively. And again, he's writing selectively so that you and I might know the Jesus that he knew intimately. And that by knowing, we would come to believe. And that by believing, we would have life, live life, and enjoy life in his name. The first five verses of the prologue, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful, as Lon prayed, for the brothers in this room that you give us the opportunity and the desire to meet together as broken vessels, those limping in the faith, but the desire to meet together, to study your word. Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit and through your spirit, you would show us awesome and amazing things this morning about the glory and the power and the beauty of your son. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It has been said that two of the most important questions that anybody could have answer to, in fact, every major philosophy and worldview tries to answer these two questions, at least these two questions. What is true life and how do you obtain that true life? 
In fact, every single person you meet, and really the reason that anybody does anything that they do is either because they're trying to find answers to those questions or they think they already have the answer to those questions and it's guiding their life. But the majority of people are trying to figure those things out and people do wild and crazy things because they are desperate for those answers. Uh, just recently, do y'all remember Jake Plummer, the quarterback for the Denver Broncos, Jake the Snake Plummer? Not making fun of him, this is a true story. I read it uh, three days ago, I think. He spent the majority of his life earnings playing NFL football, he was excellent, buying a mushroom farm, kind of, you know, the hippie, psychedelic mushrooms. Spent the majority of his life savings on that because he thinks that that is going to be the answer to life and that will prolong our lives if all of us give in to those psychedelic mushrooms. Okay, he spent a significant portion of, I mean, he got high on his own supply apparently, but, but that's, what he, that's what he thought is the answer. This is, this, is the, this is our hope. This is the answer. Now, that's an extreme example, but the point is everybody out in the world is desperate to find the answer to those questions. What is true life? And how in the world do we get it? If you've read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he speaks into that. He says every single person, he coined this German term called sinsucked. He says every single person was born with this God-sized hole in their heart, an inconsolable longing for joy and vitality that goes beyond mere human, uh, or rather mere human existence, physical existence. Right? Because there's lots of physically healthy people out there that still feel this intense longing. So it goes beyond that. It goes beyond our emotional and psychological well-being. It's almost like this spiritual vitality that people are desperate for and are trying to satisfy. He goes on to say in that book that there's three ways that people generally try to satisfy that, that longing. The first way he describes as the foolish person's way. The foolish person is someone who, say, for example, takes success. And they think to themselves, if they achieve something, that will satisfy that longing. So it could be something in social success. You're just trying to get to the, the top rung of society. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, business success. You, you, you know, I'm going to fight for this big merger or this, at least this level of income. And, and that's what's going to make me happy. Or maybe it's simply having the perfect family, whatever the perfect family is in your mind. And once you achieve that, well, that's going to satisfy that sin sucked, that inner longing for vitality and life and joy. He says that will probably satisfy them for a bit, but eventually that longing will come back and it will come back stronger. So what does the foolish person do? They just go on to the next thing to achieve. They thought to himself, okay, okay, I'm still on the right path. I just chose the, the wrong thing to succeed in. So maybe it's this thing. So I'm going to give my life to this. And on and on and on and on they go until they basically just burn themselves out. That's the foolish person's way. The second way is the sensible person's way. This person thinks to himself, okay, I have this longing that clearly nothing in this life, no person, place, or thing could possibly satisfy it, right? But then they wrongly conclude, therefore, it simply cannot be obtained. So what do they do? They amuse themselves to death. And I think that's primarily where most people are today. Most people have seen that politics or economic success or every the things that we used to put our hope in 10, 20, 30 years ago has failed. And so what are we going to do now? We might as well just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So let's just numb that longing with pleasure. That's where more people are today, I think. But then there's the third way. The third way is someone who thinks to himself, you know what? 
I was created with this longing. I was created with this desire for joy and vitality. And I also know there's not one thing in this world that could possibly satisfy that feeling. And then they rightly conclude, I therefore must be created for another world. And that's why John is teaching us in his gospel account. The concept of life is extremely important to John. He brings it up no less than 50 times in his gospel. What is this true life? How do we get it? How do we live it? 50 times. And he is saying there's this life to be had that goes beyond our human existence, our physical existence, that goes beyond just feeling happy. It goes beyond anything that this world could possibly provide, and it's called eternal life. And he says a few things about eternal life. One, it's eternal. (laughs) It doesn't end. But then he says the source of this life, the source of this life which satisfies those longings, which will never, ever end, but get better and better and better until we come into the fullness thereof when Christ returns and makes all things new. The source of that life is Jesus Christ himself. That when you put your faith in him, you become organically tied to him. he's 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 the vine and we are the branches. What John is saying, what John is trying to prove in this gospel is that Jesus and Jesus alone can give the life that we all desperately need and long for. So he says a lot of things in these first five verses, but in these five five verses, there's three things that he says which uniquely qualify Jesus and Jesus alone as being that life giver. So let's look at them in succession. The first thing that he says is that Jesus is before time and space. To put it another way, Jesus exists outside time and space. That's what we see in verses one and two. Now, before we dive in to see what that means, a little excursus that I think is important. John brings up this concept that we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks, but he brings it up here, and it's very, very important. You'll notice that he describes Jesus as the Word. Now, in Greek, what that says is, is that Jesus is the Logos, okay? That was an extremely important concept to two groups of people, the pagans and the Jews, basically everybody, Okay, it was a very important word to them. Now, remember, John is writing to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And so he's being a very good pastor. He's contextualizing his message. But what is the Logos? For the pagans, the Gentiles with a pagan background, the Logos was a philosophical term. It was basically the unifying principle behind the entire universe. Okay, it was um, reason personified. Reason holds all things together. The Greeks felt that, the Romans felt that. That's just a pagan concept, very important to their, to their worldview. Now, for the Jewish person, the Logos, the Greek and Hebrew, described the actual Word of God, the Word by which God creates, redeems, rescues, judges, and provides understanding to His mind and will, the Word of God. Very important word for everyone. So here's John. He's bringing both of those concepts together in his gospel, He's reeling in both the Gentile person, he's reeling in both the Gentile and the Jewish people. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to show everybody that Jesus is for the whole world. There's not one person excluded from the invitation of coming to Jesus. No matter how bad you think you are, Jesus was for the world. He came for the world and he gives an invitation to the world, no matter what your background is. And that's good news. 
Now, as this life giver, again, he says a couple of things about Jesus. The logos, the life giver. First off, he was before time. Before time existed. Now, why is that important? Think about it like this. If one of us had our hearts stopped this morning, you know, after the, the bacon and the sausage and the eggs, our hearts just stopped, which I pray that doesn't happen, but say it does happen, you would not be able to resuscitate yourself. It would be amazing if you could, but you can't. You need someone outside of your existence to save you, right? There was a philosopher, uh, I can't remember his name, a philosopher that said the answer to man's plight in space and time actually lies outside space and time. He says the same thing. In other words, what that means is, is that you and I cannot define what true life is without an outside perspective of life. You and I, who desperately need life, cannot provide life to ourselves. That's what John is saying in verses 1 and 2. Jesus is uniquely qualified because he has both that perspective and that ability. And he proves that in three different ways. First off, he says that Jesus is eternally pre-existent. <laughs> this is just amazing stuff. I think we take this for granted sometimes. But Jesus, he says, eternally pre-existent. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2.6 and Colossians 1.17. But look at that phrase. He says, in the beginning. Okay, all of the gospel writers start someplace. Mark begins his gospel when Jesus begins his ministry. He cuts out the nativity. He gets right to brass tacks. He wants to get to the point. Luke goes back a little bit further. He goes back to the nativity, one of our favorite passages come Christmas time. Matthew goes back further than that. He does include the, the birth of Jesus, but before the birth of Jesus, what do we have? We have a genealogy. Who's the first person listed in Jesus' lineage? Abraham. <laughs> and what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus is the heir of Abraham. He is the promised seed, promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Now that's going back about as far as you can get to the garden, but where does John start? John starts before time began. Alexander McLaren, the old Scottish Baptist pastor, I love this quote. He said, he said the other gospel writers began writing in time, that's where their story started. But John starts in the bosom of the Father. And that's exactly the point that John is making. Listen to what he says. He says, in the beginning was the Word. We're going to spend a little bit of Greek time. So if it's all Greek to you, I apologize, but it's very important. A little bit of Greek in this first point. That word was, was written in the imperfect tense so it kind of carries this nuance of was and was continuing. Does that make sense? So it's like this continual was. So what John is saying was, uh, in the beginning was the word. What he is saying is that there was never a time where Jesus did not exist. If you put it in redneck, Jesus was, always wasn't. All right, he, he just always was. There was never a time Jesus was not. Now, brothers, think about that. I have no pastoral application for that point other than adoration. Allow your minds to slip back into time when time vanishes and human thought collapses in on itself and atoms and neurons dissipate. What do you got left? You got Christ. Do you think he has the perspective of what true life is? John doesn't stop there. 
who goes on to say that Jesus is eternally in relationship with the Father. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Another important Greek word. What that means is, is that the Word, Logos, Jesus, was continually toward the Father. With. It means face to face. That's what John is saying. So just imagine what John is saying, what the original hearer was saying. John is saying that the Word, Logos, Jesus, was continually, forever, face-to-face, gazing into the beauty and the glory of the Father. Again, just think about that. Without beginning, without end, Jesus has always been in a perfect, joyful harmony with his Father. And that's not just John pontificating. Jesus says the exact same thing. That's his testimony in the high priestly prayer the night before Jesus was murdered. This is what Jesus says. He knows that his time is at hand, so he says, Now glorify me, Father, in your presence, the glory I had with you before the world existed. John chapter 1 and John chapter 17 gives us a crack into eternity past. Do you ever, do you ever wonder what it was like before stars began? John tells us, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were eternally loving and eternally being loved, eternally happy in his triune self. John is painting us a picture of the reality of who Jesus is. And that leads us to the third sub-point in this first point. John says, Jesus is eternally God. I mean, that's the... That's the cream on the top. <laughs> Jesus is eternally. This is what he says. And the word was God. Again, something really cool with the Greek there. Martin Luther says that this is the most beautiful, uh, terse theological statement ever written. Okay, in just five words, both in English and in Greek, in five words, John affirms orthodoxy and denounces two different heresies. The heresy of modalism, which says that Jesus and the Father are exactly the same. They just exist exist in different modes at different times. It denounces that and also denounces Arianism that says that Jesus is less than divine. And you know how he does it? He does it with simple sentence structure and the use of the definitive article, the. All that to say is, well, this is what John is saying, when Jesus was God, the Word was God. This is, what, this is what John is saying. Jesus is a distinct person from the Father. But still, this same Jesus of Nazareth, who was a carpenter and uh, a rabbi and who died for our sins and rose on the third day, that Jesus is God himself. God in the flesh, very God of very God. And again, this isn't just him making it up. Jesus says the same thing of himself in John chapter 8. He says, before Abraham was, I am the same language that Yahweh uses of himself in the Old Testament. Brothers, this is hugely important. It means two different things. First off, like C.S. Lewis says in his trilemma, after we hear that, we can only make one of three conclusions. Jesus is a lunatic to say something like that. He is the devil himself, or he is exactly who he says he is. And John here says Jesus is exactly who he says he is, which means then, brothers, Jesus is God? That means means we worship him without cessation. And we obey him without hesitation. And we love him without reservation. Jesus is God. 
And it also means that he alone is uniquely qualified to give us the life that we desire. That's the first thing that John says. Now, the second thing John says, we look at verse 3. Not only was Jesus before space and time, but he actually created it. (laughs) Again, John is giving us this huge vision, brothers, of who Jesus is. Not only is he God, but it's through Jesus that everything in the cosmos was created. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now, brothers, this is not just a one-off. The creatorship of Jesus is the consistent witness of the New Testament. Colossians 1, 16-17. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, and all things were created through and for him. He is before all things, again, before time, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, 2-3. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him he also created the world. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The consistent New Testament witness is that everything is made for the glory of Christ. It was made by Him, through Him, and for Him. Again, how often do we just think about that? When was it two weeks ago that the blue moon, we had the blue, was that two weeks ago? The blue moon? Anybody go out in their backyard and look at that puppy? I missed it because my kids were exhausting. I was in bed about six, but I saw pictures the next day, and it was amazing. I mean, I have to wait another 14 years to see it again, but still, it was incredible. And I don't know about you, but anytime a celestial happening happens, I get a little nerded out and I go investigate. I mean, just the the vastness of space is just something, right? So here's something that I researched and learned. Did you know there is about 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone? And there's about 100 million galaxies in the observable universe? I mean, that's a good bit. Um, I came across this quote from Albert Einstein who believed that humanity in in his time, so I'm sure we've scanned more since then, but in his time, he says humanity has only scanned about one billionth of theoretical space, which means then there's about 10 octillion stars out there. Do you know how much 10 octillion is? Glad you asked, I'll tell you. 1,000 billion equals 1 trillion. 1,000 trillion equals one quadrillion. 1,000 quadrillions equals one quintillion. 1,000 quintillions equal one sextillion. 1,000 sextillions equals one septillion. I'm almost done. 1,000 septillions equals one octillion. We're talking 10 octillion. That is the number one with 27 zeros after it. And what John says is that Jesus Christ created every single one of them. The greatest star and the smallest atom. That's how great Jesus is. And brothers, we just don't know him unless we know him like that. Because the reality is, the infinite love of Jesus is seen in the vastness of creation. This is what I mean by that. Think about all the majesty, all the brilliance of all the things that we see in creation. Did you know that he tells us in his word that little old you And little old me is the crown jewel of it all. 
That's what he tells us in, in Psalm 8. King David had his mind blown. King David went outside to look at the blue moon. And he looked up and he saw all the stars in their place. And he, this is what he said in Psalm 8. Who am I that you should think of me? Are you serious? God, who am I that you made me a little bit lower than the angels but crowned me with glory and honor? Did you know he crowned you with glory and honor? He gave life, he created life, and he made you special as those created in his image? Do you know what that means, first off? It means, as creator, he knows exactly what's going on with his creation. He knows exactly what's going on with you and me. He's like the world's greatest mechanic. I don't know how to fix my car to save my life. I go to a, Some of y'all know how to do it, but I go to my, my mechanic. Now, none of us can fix our lives. Jesus is the one who made us. He knows exactly how to tinker with us. He knows exactly how to prod us. He knows exactly how to fix us. He is the creator of life. Why in the world would we go to anywhere but him? But there's something else, too, that John shows us. I'm sure you've already picked this up, but it's clear that John is trying to tie the beginning of his gospel to the beginning of Genesis, right? We have seen a lot of the same language, a lot of allusions from the creation account in Genesis 1, what we see in John 1. Now, why does John do that? Well, again, he's showing us that it's through Jesus that all things were created. But he also gives us a, a little snippet of what he's going to teach explicitly in John chapter 3. John is telling us, listen, something new has happened. Yeah, Jesus, it was through Jesus everything was made. But now something new has happened. Something has changed through his, through his earthly ministry, through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus has started a new work, and it's called new creation. And he teaches about this explicitly in John chapter 3 when he talks about new birth. Again, there's some of that Genesis language. New birth, something new. And Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where he says, In Jesus Christ... That is, that you have come to faith in Jesus. You are now a new creation. The old man has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What John is showing us is that Jesus is the creator of life, but he's also the giver of new life. I mean, just think about how loving Jesus is. Okay, we see his love in creation. We certainly see it in new creation. Jesus, we were made for himself. We were made for God. We were made to enjoy this relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to enjoy him forever. But in our sin, we ran away. We ruined it, and we ruined our own lives. And we would have been perfectly, he would have been perfectly just to leave us in our condemnation, but he didn't leave us there. Jesus ran after us in grace so that when we come to faith in him, not only are we restored, but we are given new and better better life. He is the giver of new life. Brothers, the question is, are we looking to him? John is saying, don't, the answers that you look for for this longing in your heart is not found here. Don't go the fool's way. That's ridiculous. It's called a fool's way for a reason. Don't go the sensible person's way either. Look to Christ. And so are we resting in him? Are we looking to Jesus? Because seriously, when we consider how great he is, very God of very God, I mean, that's the only reasonable response is to look to Christ. So that's the second thing John says. The last thing that John says is that Jesus has actually entered 
space and time. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Now, Todd's going to talk about this a lot more in the weeks ahead when we get to that famous verse, the Word became flesh. But notice what John says here. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Context. John is saying, ever since the fall, we live in a darkened world. Up is down, down is up. Everything's backwards. It's filled with evil. And, you know, you just have to flip on the news once to see that is true. The whole world is darkened. People are desperate for light, whether if they know it or not. Right? Why is that the case? Isaiah tells us back in Isaiah chapter 9. He says that everybody in the world is stumbling around in darkness. They're hurting themselves. They're hurting each other. They're running away from God. Why? Because they are spiritually blind is what Isaiah says. Now, why are they spiritually blind? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, it's because we are spiritually dead. We were born that way. In our sin, we were born cut off from God with no possibility of resuscitating ourselves. We are spiritually blind and spiritually dead. And what John is saying here is that we need light. And the great news is, he's desperate for us to know, is that the only source of life that gives light has come into the world, and his name is Jesus. And this is what Jesus, again, says of himself. This is not John making stuff up. This isn't him pontificating. Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light to the world. Anyone who follows me will never again walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. Brothers, this is the good news. Ever since the fall, the evil one and his minions have been ruling this world. That does not mean that he's responsible for all of the evil. Most of it is responsible by us in our own sin. But nevertheless, ever since the fall, humanity has been enslaved in the dungeons of darkness. But now John gives us the good news. Christ has come. The life and the light has come. For what reason? One, to take back what is rightfully his. And also to free us from the dungeons of darkness. And how does that work? It works that when we come to Jesus, the only giver of life, when we come to him in faith, that's exactly what he gives us. He gives us life. He puts his nature in us. He takes up residence in our hearts, and that life never, never ends. It'll only get better like a fine wine until we come into the fullness thereof and the new heavens and the new earth. And that life enlightens, John says, everything about us. He opens our blind eyes to know what's up. And what's down, this is what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is pleading with us to understand that it's only him that's the giver of true life. And once he gives us that life, he shows us how to live that life and how to enjoy that life as it was meant to be lived and enjoyed. John is saying this right here is the answer to those two great philosophical questions that everybody out there is running themselves ragged to try to figure out. And it's the answer to them both. And his name is Jesus Christ. One last thing before we close. Notice, G, or John says rather, the light has come and it shines. Not that it's shown, past tense. You know, you would think that he's talking about the incarnation, which of course he is. Jesus came to earth as a baby once. But he doesn't say shown. He says, the light has come and it shines. It continually shines 
in the darkness, even after the ascension, Jesus is still shining. Even after the ascension, Jesus is bombarding every dark corner in this world, and as hard as it might try, evil can never, ever overcome it. Jesus is shining. How in the world is that possible? Matthew tells us in chapter 5, it's through the church, through men like you, who have the Spirit and the life and the light of Christ. And he promises you darkness will never overcome his church. This is what John is telling us in these first five verses. Jesus is not an ordinary Joe. He is very God of very God. He took on flesh. He entered this world to take back what is rightfully his and to give life to men like you and me. To transform us into little lights that point other people to the giver of life. That's how amazing Jesus is, brothers. This summer, I uh, read through all of Chronicles of Narnia with my oldest, Eli. We loved him. Um, Prince Caspian is probably one of our favorites, and there's this little blurb in Prince Caspian that's quoted by every preacher everywhere, so I'm going to quote it to you today. Um, There's a section there where little Lucy, one of the main characters, it's been a long time since she has seen um, um, Aslan the lion. That's the Christ-like figure. And she loves Aslan, of course she does, because that's the Christ-like figure. But it's been a long time since she's seen him. And finally, they had this conversation, and her eye, she sees him for the first time in a while, and her eyes are huge. And Aslan says, welcome, daughter. And little Lucy says, Aslan, you've, my goodness, you've gotten so much bigger. And Aslan says, no, 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 you've gotten older. And she was confused by that, and she goes, is it not because you've gotten older? And Aslan says, no. But every time you grow older, every year, I'll become bigger to you. That's why I love the gospel. That's why I love the Bible. But that's why I love the gospel of John. It was my favorite book when I first became a Christian. And I love it even more now. Because every time I come to it, I see a bigger Jesus. And brothers, that is our hope. That is Todd's hope, my hope, and all the other teachers. That's that's our hope, that every time that we come here, Jesus would be bigger to us. That we would see him as he really is, very God of very God, the Logos, the light of the world, and the giver of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers. I pray for me, (laughs) and I pray for Todd and all the others who will teach. that each and every Thursday you would show us Christ. That you would cause us to believe all the more deeply, and by believing, we would have more and more faith, and that by your Spirit, you would teach us and show us how to live and enjoy the life that only you can give. And we pray this in his blessed name. Amen.